When I was in high school, I was forced to read literature. I was forced to read Romeo and Juliet, A Tale of Two Cities, Moby Dick, and yes, The Scarlet Letter. And as I was preparing for this sermon series, I was struck with the irony of junior year and us reading The Scarlet Letter and what was playing out in my high school. I had uh, a group of seven friends. We kind of called ourselves the Magnificent Seven, four girls, three boys. And one of them, Stacy, her dad had moved out. And I was naive at the time, not able to always connect the dots for things. And I would dog her consistently. Stacy, why is your dad not in your house? Stacy, what's going on with your mom and dad? Hey, Stacy, is your dad living in another town? She couldn't take it anymore. And one night after a football game, after we had done our marching band part, we were at Pizza King and she said, fine, you want to know what happened to my dad? He's been having an affair with someone else at the bank. And my mom has decided to divorce him, so she kicked him out of the house. Are you happy? Uh, I'm sorry, you know, and you could feel the anger and the, you know, shame that she felt in that moment. And the other thing that was going on junior year uh, is uh, Melissa, who had been the homecoming queen, who was also a straight-A student, uh, turned up pregnant over Christmas. And this was 1984, and so the school decided that not only could she not attend prom, but she could not fulfill her duties as homecoming queen to pass on her crown to the prom queen. And Melissa would walk in between classes with her arms like this and her books, and she would walk with her head down. And here we were studying the scarlet letter, and we never talked about shame. Not once. Now, high school, if you're not uh, familiar with high school, high school is a petri dish of shame. High school is a petri dish. High school grows shame faster than anything else. Um, for those of you in middle school, I'm sorry, but it does get a little worse before it gets better, okay? And so for those of you who have been in high school, think back for a moment about the group or the tribe that you had. Maybe you were one of the jocks or one of the cheerleaders or one of the band kids or choir kids or you were one of the nerds or uh, maybe you were one of the skaters. How did that group get you to behave? How did that group get you to dress a certain way? Isn't it interesting how the different groups in high school would even dress a little differently? And was there peer pressure, group loyalty, and the fear of rejection if you did the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, or <gasps> wore the wrong thing? Was there, if, if that was the case for you, that was shame at work. That was shame at work. Um, at age 10, we had one of those companies come to our elementary school and set up a store where you could buy gifts for your family members at Christmas. And I was so excited because I had saved my own money and I picked out a gift for my grandfather. And I, was, I couldn't wait for the family Christmas to roll around and to see his face when he opened it because he, he was my favorite grandpa and I, had, and, and, I, and I was excited. And so the day of the family exchange came and as he, as he finished unwrapping the last little bit, one of my relatives, an aunt or an uncle, I'm not gonna say which, one of my relatives blurted out, what a stupid gift. Do you know I could feel the blood rushing into my cheeks? I could feel my heart pounding inside my chest and I just wanted to run. I wanted to run out of that room. I wanted to hide because I felt so ashamed. And 
And that Christmas was ruined for me. Like, I, I was sullen the whole day. I didn't want to talk to any of my relatives. Now, in my relative's defense, my grandfather could have made that for himself. Yes, 10-year-olds are not necessarily the best gift getters. But I'm, I'm 50 now, and I can tell you at age 50, I'm still not the best gift getter. Okay, it's a thing. It's a thing. I felt a little bit of shame again just a few weeks ago. Um, normally, Jillian drives everyone to school, but on this particular day, I had an appointment, so suit and tie, we were ready, had to get to school quickly. The sun had just come up over the horizon, and I got to the stop sign. No one was coming. I pulled out into this little kind of gathering area where you have to stop and yield. Again, I looked. I didn't see anyone, and I, I went through the yield only to hear, burp. I look again, and there's a King Cab Ford F-250 coming toward me. So I, I, I slam on the brakes, anti-lock braking system engaged, Captain, and we avoid collision. But that guy in that truck kept his hand on the horn for a good 10 seconds. And while he was honking at me, gave me not one, not two, but three finger wags. And you know what that meant, right? Shame on you, you moron. How could you not see the yield sign? And there was a lady coming out of Hawthorne in her minivan, and this was her face. <laughs> and then when he went on, she just kind of gave me this look like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry for you, okay? Woo! There are words, I'm going to shock some of you in a minute, there are words we don't say in public, vagina, masturbation, <gasps> and there's a topic that we never talk about, and it's shame. We never talk about shame, and because we don't talk about it and we don't acknowledge it, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes ineffective in our lives, and so if I have something I want you to know on this Easter Sunday of all days, Jesus came not just to pay the penalty for our sin, but to take away our shame so that our relationship with God and our relationships with other people can be restored. Because I'm going to tell you right now that you cannot have a whole life-giving relationship with anyone that is absorbed and consumed by shame. It doesn't work. Now, shame is a very powerful emotion and it's a very powerful experience, uh, but it's different than guilt, okay? Shame focuses on the self. Guilt focuses on behavior. Shame says, I am bad. Uh, guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt says, whoops, I made a mistake. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? According to B'nai Brown, shame is what fuels addiction, depression, violence, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. It is an epidemic in America right now, even though, shh, we never talk about it. 
shame manifests itself in your life and in my life in two ways. There are two tapes that play over and over again. And for those of you who are younger, there are two YouTube videos that automatically reload and nothing you do can change it. It automatically reloads and replays again. And the two, the two things are, you are not enough. You are not good enough. You are not smart enough. You are not pretty enough. You are not enough. And if you can manage to kick that to the curb and get some freedom from it and have Jesus tell you who you are, there's another one that starts up. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to talk to your kids? You know what kind of mom they were, you were when they were young. Who do you think you are to do what you're doing in church? Um, Again, those two things play. You are not enough, and who do you think you are? Where did this come from? Why, why are we so ravaged by shame? Gang, it's part of our story. It's part of our story. In Genesis chapter 2, at the very beginning pages of our story, God has made everything. And there's this uh, phrase at the end of all of it in Genesis chapter 2, the culmination, God makes the universe, galaxies, stars, planets, earth, everything on the earth, all the creepy crawly things and the fish and the birds and then he makes a man and a woman, people in his own image and the Bible is like, this is good, this is good, this is very good and then this statement right here. The man and his wife were both naked but they felt no shame. If you were summarizing what had just happened in Genesis 1 and 2, wouldn't you use a different word? The man and his wife were both naked and really happy. The man and his wife were both naked and, wink, wink, nod, nod, extremely productive. The man and his wife were both naked and strong and creative and just pick any kind of word. Why is this word here? It's dramatic foreshadowing because shame is about to factor in in a big way in chapter three, okay? Why this emphasis on shame? Well, a serpent, a talking serpent appears, and I don't have time to get into that, right? But a talking serpent appears and makes some claims about God and the kind of God that it, God is and has this conversation with the woman. And the serpent says in verse four, to the woman, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. This is what Kurt Thompson says of this particular passage. In stating flatly that the woman will not die, the serpent offers her a new rendition of the truth, a startling one to be sure, but this is not merely a factual sleight of hand. To be told that you will be like God may seem like a good thing. I'd love to hear that. But the subtle corollary to this idea is that given the prohibition to the fruit of this particular tree, by implication, he's an egghead, God does not want you to be like him. God does not want you to have what he has. He does not want you to be as close and as connected to him as you might think he does. And by further implication, therefore, you are not as important as you think. You, as it turns out, are less than you think. You are not enough. You are not enough. And so the woman 
confronted with this idea and this challenge to who she is and who God is and the relationship that she has, does she go to God for clarification? Hey, God, this talking serpent said, no. She judges and analyzes God and she judges herself, which is what all of us do. And so the man and the woman take the fruit that they're not supposed to take. And in fact, their eyes are opened. And that's verse, the next set of verses, verse six. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So just before they were naked and had no shame. Now they're naked and vulnerable with each other and they feel shame. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. I want to make some connections for you. During Jesus' last week, he comes across a fig tree that is fully leafed but has no fruit. Jewish uh, rabbis for years and years and years talked about uh, the extra biblical tradition that Eve used fig leaves because no other tree would yield its leaf to her. So that's how they covered their nakedness was through the fig tree. And so when Jesus is cursing the fig tree and he says, may you never be, bear fruit again, in part, it's judgment on God's people because there's a connection with Israel. But the larger thing going on is Jesus is making a claim that the shame that entered in through the garden is about to be dealt with with what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, he is naked. I hate to have to tell you Roman Catholics this, but I know that when, when our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters put Jesus on the cross, he's always covered with a loincloth. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was crucified naked. He was completely naked. The, the, the scriptures tell us they were gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross. But because we can't handle shame, anytime we depict him on the cross, we depict him with a loincloth. It's not how the Romans did it. Jesus came to take our shame. And God is wanting to restore what was in Genesis 2 to humanity. Look at verse 8. So what do the man and woman do now that they feel ashamed? They hide. That's verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord, God among the trees. The man and the woman hide, which is what we do when we feel ashamed. We hide. We hide from other people. We hide from God's people. We hide from our spouse, from our family. We hide from ourselves. We hide. We hide. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we read about how people mishandle shame. David, I mean, there's a long line of people in the Old Testament, but Jesus came to break the curse, to take away our shame. And so I want to come to Luke. Jesus tells three stories in a row, boom, 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 in response to some complaining that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were giving him, and that's Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Jesus, Jesus, in a sense, they're saying to him, have you no shame? 
Do you not know the kind of people that these people are? Jesus, Jesus, no tax collector ever could be acceptable or good enough to be acceptable in God's sight. Four chapters later comes Zacchaeus. Boom. And so Jesus fires off three stories, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And so I want us to kind of summarize the last story, two disgraceful sons and one extravagantly loving father. You know the story of the prodigal son. A man has two sons. One son wants his inheritance early, a shameful request. The father gives it to him. The son squanders money on bad choices. Famine hits. Food is scarce. The son takes a job of all things feeding pigs. The son resolves to go home despite the shame he feels, but knows he cannot return as a son. When he arrives home, what does he get? Does he get a lecture? Does he get public shaming? Does he get the finger wag from his papa? What does he get? A robe? a ring, and a party, symbols of true sonship. Apparently, the answer to the question of Genesis 3 is, yes, God loves the people he made so much that he will go to extravagant ends so that they can enjoy him forever. There is no greater good than God. Look at these verses and see the connection. Verse 7 in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't stayed strayed. Verse 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Verse 32, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he was found. For the one who repents and returns there is not shame, but joy. Joy. I think and I hope that maybe this will help you understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 12. We do this by keeping our eyes on who? Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Over the next several weeks with you, I want to talk about shame. And in light of these passages, in light of what we see in Genesis and in Luke, I want to ask some questions. The first question is, what are the stories that you're telling yourself about you? What are the stories that you're telling yourself about you on an ongoing, regular basis? I'll tell you one of mine for years was, I'm not smart enough. Not smart enough, not smart enough. The funny thing is, I have people tell me all the time, you're so smart. But, the, but when I would look in the mirror, the thing that I would think over and over again, I'm not smart enough, not smart enough. What are the tactics that you use to hide? And who do you hide from? And on your best day, on your best day, with whom would you like to be transparent? to be seen and to be known. On this Easter Sunday, I just want you to see that the gospel is more than just forgiveness of sins. That's part of it. It's a huge part of it. But an even 
bigger part is the shame that comes with it. Jesus came to take our shame. Now, the second thing is this, vulnerability, and I'm going to flesh this out over the next several weeks. Vulnerability is the key to breaking the power of shame in your life. Now, what we do naturally is when we feel ashamed, we hide. That's what we do naturally. We hide. Let me ask a couple of questions. Did hiding from God help Adam and Eve? Let me ask that again. Did hiding from God help Adam and Eve? No. Did transferring the shame that they felt onto someone else help them? So when God confronts and asks the questions, which I don't think are a shaming questions, I think they're questions of relationship, uh, when the woman says, the serpent, and when the man says, the woman, and they're taking their shame and they're trying to put it on someone else, did that help them? No, it didn't help them, okay? Some of you may be wondering, why do I have this three by five card on my chair today? It's not because I want your email address. It's because I'm giving you some homework because I love you. And here's the homework. This week, I want you to keep track on a daily basis of the number of times that you feel shame. I don't care what it is. Maybe it's like me and you're in traffic and there's a guy honking at you and shaking his finger and you just, the feelings happen, okay? Maybe it's you're talking to your spouse and your spouse brings up the project that you promised you were gonna do and haven't brought up and as soon as they mention it, right, the feelings are there and you feel ashamed. I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. I just want you to keep tally marks, hash marks, each day, every day for the entire week. And when the week is over, I want you to look at this three by five card because here's my suspicion. Shame is speaking to you far more frequently than Jesus is. Let me say that again. Shame is speaking to you far more frequently than Jesus is. And I want you to hear from Jesus. I want you to hear from Jesus. Why is this so important? Uh, you may not know this, but I, your pastor, Max Vanderpool, have mob connections. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Let me tell you my story. Grandma and Grandpa Rabino, my great-grandparents, came over on the boat from Italy. And as was the case with all Italians of that time period, if you were Italian, you knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who could take care of the problem. And apparently, Grandpa Rabino was involved in a murder. The lawyer told him, because the evidence is circumstantial and because it is what it is, by the time this gets to trial, if your wife should be there in the courtroom, obviously pregnant, I'm fairly certain I could get you off. I'm fairly certain we could get an acquittal. So they did what married people do. And when it came time to trial, she was obviously, as we say in the Bible, with child. And he was acquitted. And after the trial and after the baby was born, they took that baby and they gave it to their oldest daughter who was already married and they said, here, we don't want her, you raise her. That was my grandmother. My grandmother got pregnant, had a baby, my mom, and turned around and did the same thing and went to the sister who raised her and said, here, here's my daughter, I don't want her, you raise her. Now, my mom didn't do that to us, but I'm going to tell you right now that when you don't feel wanted by your parents, 
there is a tremendous amount of shame that you take with you. And that's part of my story. And so again, Jesus came not just to pay the penalty for our sins, not just to give and offer us forgiveness, but to take away our shame so that our relationship with God and our relationships with each other could be restored. 